This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Chris Scott, legendary chef here in the New York area, who has a long, long resume. Um, But just so this intro isn't super long, (laughs) I'm going to talk about your time here in New York and all the things you accomplished. So after you worked in Philly for 15 years, you moved to New York City and led as the executive chef for CNN and Time Warner, where you cooked for people such as Nelson Mandela and many other dignitaries. Um, In November of 2010, Chef Chris opened Brooklyn Commune with his wife, Eugenie. They both shared a love for food and community and embarked on a mission to bring people together around food. They developed socially responsible programs, including kids' cooking classes that benefited a local woman's shelter free monthly meals, and healthy recipe sharing in underprivileged neighborhoods, and other local as well as international efforts. They were honored with the Community Leader Award by Canva for their work and commitment to raising the community. Chef Chris continues his social advocacy work as a brand ambassador for the Institute of Culinary Education, inspiring up-and-coming chefs, and also with the Food Bank of New New York City in their mission to eradicate hunger. In April 2016, they opened Butterfunk Kitchen, a soul food restaurant that is heritage cooking at its finest. The restaurant was recognized by Brooklyn Magazine as one of the 10 best restaurants in 2016 and received high praise from the New York Times. Chef Chris also competed on season 15 of Bravo's Top Chef and made it to the final four. Isn't that something? A finalist. Isn't that something? On Top Chef season 15. It blows my mind still. Which, if you haven't watched that season, that's a really good season to watch. So, the recognition from the series amplified his mission to give soul food the respect it deserves, amen, as an honorable American cuisine. In February of 2018, Chris spearheaded a dinner at the James Beard House for Juneteenth Day, which, if you don't know what that is, you should should know as an American. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Commemorating the day when slavery was finally abolished in in all of the United States. This was a historic event at the James Beard House, 
being the first ever dinner to honor an African-American holiday and will proudly continue as an annual dinner. Chris continues to share the history and development of African-American culture through a cookbook that he's working on with his wife, Mm -hmm. sharing his family's recipes and stories across seven generations, and with the recent opening of his third restaurant, Birdman Juke Joint in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Chef Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? Before we came on the air, like, I was saying that this has been like a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy to be here, too. Yeah, I... I mean, you've done so much in the food world. Um, yeah. To have you here is, is really great. Thank you. So I recently wrote a piece about um, the late, great Chef Patrick Clark. Mm-hmm. And you sent me a message, or maybe it was a comment. And you're yeah. like, I have a story for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you when I see you. Right. So I figured we should start with that story. Okay. I want to hear it. Okay. So Patrick Clark, absolutely one of my heroes. And um, I remember when they were doing a tribute for him, I think when Charlie Trotter and those guys were uh, doing like a fundraiser for him at, at, at Tavern on the Green. This is back in like the late 90s. Tickets for that were well into like the steep 100s, you know, and being a young guy in my 20s at the time, definitely could not afford that ticket price. So me and my boy were like, you know what, let's throw on our whites Let's get in the car and let's drive up. So we threw on our, 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 our chef coats, black and white checks, got in the car, parked about a block away, walked in through the back door, right? <laughs> and this is you drove up from Philly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Walked into the back door, went into the walk-in, grabbed the case of whatever, brought it out, and just started prepping, <laughs> right? And then we just kind of reached out to, to different chefs. Chef, can I help you do something? Chef, do you need a hand? Wow. You know, so we just kind of bogarted our way in. So even though I wasn't a guest, I kind of bogarted the scene and, and helped work that event. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Nowadays, they might have like guards or something. Yeah, know? they might be like, why are you uh, yeah. chiffonading all that right, basil? Right, right. We, didn't, we don't need that tonight. Yeah, right. <laughs> you might get caught. Right, now. yep, yep. Uh, but that's incredible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in the intro, but you have a new restaurant in Bridgeport, mm-hmm. Connecticut. Yep. Um, can you talk about Birdman Juke Joint? Sure, sure. Birdman is, uh, is about maybe going on a month old so far. And we opened... Uh, um, on Black Rock Day, which is like a big parade kind of community neighborhood kind of get together. And the first five days we were doing anywhere from like 310 to about 370 people a day with just four cooks with me being wow. the fourth. Um, but it's great, you know. Uh, Birdman kind of has a rich history. The Birdman was the, was the individual on the plantation who tended to the birds, to the chickens. Um, and with those skills, even after slavery, uh, they took those skills and you know were able to raise birds all the way from egg to slaughter. Um, it in, in in time, you know, enriched them to have their own businesses, from butcher shops to being chefs themselves, you know, all the way to be able to sustain themselves as a family, to be able to buy a home, a car, put their family through college. Mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So the story of the Birdman, you know, that's really what it's about. You know, I try to keep 
the theme along the lines of a respectful chicken shack like you would down south if you went to Prince's or something like that. So it's like that, but also focusing on southern agriculture or the agriculture of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people will always assume that soul food or southern food is all about fried chicken, grits, watermelon, and anything that's red velvet. You know, but mm-hmm. back then, or even still, you know, a lot of real Southern food is based on its agriculture. Right. And if and if you look at a at an authentic dish from back in the day, it would be, you know, something that was grown in the field, you know, turned into a stew. If you were lucky, you might have a bone or backbone of a chicken to kind of enrich that broth, and then that would be kind of poured over a piece of maybe day-old cornbread or so. Mm. And that was a regular meal. You know, things like fried chicken, ribs, and everything like that were sort of known as uh, celebration foods, you know. And I guess that's kind of what people assume is real, you know, stuff. But, you know, slaves certainly weren't eating like that, you know, back then at, at all, you know. And black folk were definitely too poor to even have things like sugar and butter and cream and all that on a regular basis. I think it's so um, interesting and so really like beautiful that you're kind of paying homage to this history mm-hmm. and picking it up and you know I in the intro we talked about how you really want diners, you really want Americans to see soul food as just as equal to every other type of cuisine yeah. that's like revered in this country. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 super important. You know, you look at even the way that Italian food came into play. You look at just a regular pasta dish, you know, and way back in the old country, anywhere back then, that was peasant food, you know, and now you go to places like per se and 11 Madison Park and you're paying like $400 for some regular old pasta. I mean, not, not (laughs) regular old pasta, but still pasta nonetheless, you know, where decades, centuries ago, that was just something that was whipped up by some grandmother with, you know, flour, egg, water, boom, boom, Mm -hmm. a little bit of handwork and, and a nice sauce. Yeah. You know, it's also, um, I think you did a good job of really conveying that message on Top Chef as well. Mm. Like, you know, serving fried chicken and biscuits and simply, like not trying to like deconstruct it right. and, you know, yeah. put a foam yeah. on top. Right, you know? right, right. It was still like very true to what you would get, you know, if right. you went to someone's house and they made you some fried chicken. Exactly. Was exactly. that like, was that intentional or is that just kind of what happened when you were like on the show well that that particular challenge was all about cooking from you from the heart and the heritage of your background you know so you had people that were there doing hungarian and polish and this and that and right away i knew that i was going to go to this dish you know and like you said i wasn't trying to chef it up by any means i wanted to make it as authentic as it was that I remember it from a child, the way that it was taught to me, the way that I remember it from from taste, from conversations that I've had in kitchens with with my grandmother or my aunts. You know, I wanted all of that was channeling through me when when I was making this dish. It had nothing to do with things that I've learned in kitchens or in school or or any of that. You know, it was. Here you are with your grandmother picking greens, washing them, throwing in some fat back, doing this, you know. So 
and 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 it worked out. It worked out, and and I'm so glad that the judges could could taste and 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 feel that as well. You know, as 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 well traveled as all of them are, and as much good food that they've had that they were able to just see through all the all the BS. You know, and just this is a good dish. I think that really speaks to your point, though, that, you know, this food stands up with any other type of cuisine. Yeah. You know, yep. so when you yep. taste a, a, a really good version of it or a really good interpretation of it, it's just as good as, you know, yep. the per se pasta. Exactly. Or whatever. <laughs> like that. Exactly. Um, that season of Top Chef, like you, I feel like you really let people in like the the viewers really got a sense of who you are and where you come from um one of the the terms that came up like on that show was amish soul food Mm -hmm. uh do you want to can you explain that yeah sure sure so you know a lot of people again assume that soul food is just one dimensional and just a few things on the plate but if you look at it it's so regional you know back when when slaves were freed we migrated to a lot of various parts of the country and even into Canada, some even into Mexico, you know. Um, so if you look at southern food in the panhandle, a lot of Creole influence is there, you know. If you look, if you move into the Midwest, you know, a lot of barbecue influence. If you go into the Delta region, a lot of Mexican migrant flavors are there. You come up to the East Coast from Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, even up into Canada, a lot of German, Dutch, and Amish influence. And because that's where I'm from, that phrase was kind of coined from that, mm-hmm. you know. But, uh, but that's sort of like the food that I knew from, from birth. Like, to me, that's regular, you know, to have, you know, fried chicken or a potato and beef soup you know, with your seven sweets and seven sours, mm. you know, and everything that goes along in that Amish culture as well, you know, as well as the Southern influence too. Yeah, it was really um, interesting to watch, you know, not just the judges, but like fellow contestants kind of see your vision and, yep. you know, understand the food that you were cooking and right. learn a bit more. That season, there were so many like great castmates. Yeah. Um, uh, the person who just popped into my head was uh, Brother Luck, yeah. um, who you cooked with at the James Beard House. Yep. Um, also, Chef Adrian, mm-hmm. who's been on the show. Yeah. Shout out to her. Yeah. Um, c- can you talk about the connections that you built with your fellow castmates from that season? Sure. I mean, those the two that you just mentioned. I mean, those are my peoples, you know, <laughs> and and all all of them are, you know. Um, I think that the one thing that stood out the most. And, and I always say, whoever was in charge of putting the 15 of us together should win a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> because I'm telling you, like, I just think that, that whenever all of us are together, like when we went out to, to, to be with Fatima during her last days and just connecting with Fatima's family and them sharing her vision and how we can pick that up. But it's, it's just um, none of us have any pretense to 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 ourselves yeah we're all chefs you know and we bring that to the table and we were competing you know but deep inside it's just like 
hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Adrian. Hi, I'm brother. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Tanya. You know, hey, I'm Rogelio. I'm Tyler, you know, and everything like we know each other's kids. We know each other's partners, you know, and and not just know them, but like actually tight, you know, to where it's it's family. So we got to know each other on a more personal level. Cooking is what we do, but it's not who we are with each other. You know, like we're, I could leave here tonight and go see Rogelio in San Francisco and it would be like I was talking to him just 10 minutes ago, mm. you know, and that's just the kind of connection that we all have, you know. Yeah, it was really special to, I had the, you know, the good fortune and like blessing of being at that Juneteenth dinner yep. at the Beard House last year. Yeah. And it was um, such a special moment because it does feel like there is this like swell of not just interest um, and pride in black food ways, but these uh, platforms opening up so that, you know, the Beard House is like, yes, we do want to celebrate Juneteenth. Yep. Um, can you talk about the kind of the progression you've seen of like all these different chef stories? I mean, they're kind of touching on the same story, which is, you know, the the black story in America, mm-hmm. you know, African-American food ways. But I feel like there's so many each course that evening. <coughs> Excuse me. It was so personal. Yeah. And really spoke to like each chef's perspective. Yeah. How did that come together? Um, you know, I, I, I think at least speaking from, from, from my dish, it was all about that scrapple that day. And, and, and of course doing the biscuits and, I'm not even sure if, if Scrapple has ever been served at the Beard House before, but... <laughs> I would guess no. Yeah. That's very Pennsylvania. Right. Um, Scrapple is basically like pig parts pushed together. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. But to be able to like infuse that with with a little bit of upscale to it, you know, like I did a peanut sauce, you know, where to where you have the fat back and the peanuts and you make the the liquor from that, you know, and take that and turn it into something delicious, you know, and as well as the other components that were on, on the plate. But, um, it's just, I think that those pieces are personal to the four of us. Uh, they, they speak volumes about my background and, 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 and we brought all of that to, to the table. Like with, uh, I think brother did, um, some type of meat or pulled oxtail mm-hmm. that was wrapped in a, either Swiss chard or collard greens, you know, and, and those flavors kind of spoke to him, reminded him of his father and growing up back in Oakland, you know, and Adrian did a piece, you know, and Tanya, you know, the legendary ta- yes. t- Tanya Holland, you know, brought forth her stuff. And then, you know, it's just th- those dishes speak volumes to us, personally and then we just kind of there shifted up to you know present it at the beard house but uh but we did the biscuits there yes yes you did and they were incredible yeah they were so good yeah um but yeah i think um it's really incredible to see so many you know black chefs telling their stories and telling it from their lens and their point of view and being very distinct yeah. About what they're saying and how they're saying it. Yeah. I mean, Malcolm kind of coined that phrase back in the day. It's the chickens coming home to, to, to roost. 
you know, where I think that no matter what type of culinary background that either me or JJ or Eduardo or Mashama or any of us, because we're all classically trained, Mm -hmm. but the one food that really calls us is the food of our heritage, you know, and you see that not only in black culture, but you got BJ Smith out in Portland who now is doing his Hungarian comfort food. He opened up a place like that. And then there's a lot of Korean spots that have, you know, straight up authentic Korean comfort food that you can't find Mm -hmm. in any place, you know. So I think that a lot of chefs are really starting to look, are starting to come home, you know what I mean? And really cook forth the the food of their their true heart, their their true spirit. And, um, And it's probably some of the best stuff that they've ever cooked, you know, because it it comes from a special place, you know, and from good memories and, you know, stuff like that. Do you think that you need, that you needed that foundation? Do, do you think that you needed that, like, classical training in order to get to the story you want to tell today? Or do you think you would have gotten there anyway? Personally, probably not. You know, I think that the journey that I, that I took over, I've been cooking now for maybe 30-something years, and I think that it's important that I learned classical, you know, European style first. And then that probably opened so many doors for me to, to get to where I'm at now. And even the approach that I have with chicken or collards or whatever, it's, it's being made with love and being made in that authentic way. But just my, my touch and approach to it has classic background. And the respect and discipline that I've learned in kitchens, you know, I bring that to it as well. And I even try to, you know, to uh, to teach that to to young cooks still because they'll they'll come into the kitchen, and they'll think, oh, we get a chance to work with with Chris Scott, and they'll think about, you know, all the beard awards or you know being on Top Chef, and then they get into the kitchen and they're like, oh man, this is just fried chicken, mm. but it's so much more than than just that. It's, it's the history behind it. It's the story. You know, it's the way that you approach it. You know, because if you approach it like, ah, oh, man, this is just fried chicken, then what you get back is just going to be just as, as bad. You know, but you have to really approach it with respect, you know, and then everything beautiful will come from that. Yeah, I think um, I actually wanted to talk to you about, you know, mentorship. Yeah. Uh, because it's just even from Butterfunk and um, the chefs that you had working there and you're, you and Eugenie are so quick to, you know, praise the, the people working for you and make sure people see their faces and know who they are. And they're mm-hmm. not, you know, just in the kitchen. They're like out and talking to people. And, right. Um, and unfortunately, that's pretty rare. It is, you know, and and it breaks my heart, you know. I mean... I never really want to pull cards, but 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 there are some very affluential African American chefs who, for some reason, it's always all about them, mm. you know. And I can assure you that none of us got to where we are without being on the backs of others, you know. And there are a lot of young, hungry brothers and sisters who are 
coming up in the industry who could easily smoke me and all these <laughs> other big name chefs out there. But I'm not trying to keep them hidden. Right. You know, because the story is bigger than me. You know, this food was around before I was born and it'll be around long after I'm gone. You know, I'm just a holder of the torch. So if I can give props to young people or, 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 or anybody that's doing it, you know, that, that, that is doing it and doing it well, I want to be able to do that. You know, like me and Omar are, are cool and we're both from Philly. And I think that what he's doing is brilliant with his storytelling and his food, you know, and it's just like, wow. Like to me, he's the number one cat in New York right now. To me, you know, just because of what he's bringing and his package and, you know, his flavor and his soul, like everything about him is so beautiful, you know? And, 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 and um, I just want to give him and more people more, more praise like that because there's a story to tell and he's telling it beautifully mm -hmm. you know omar has also been on the show yeah shout out to him yep, yep um i i totally agree and i was actually having a conversation with um another food writer about i i someone was saying that they they were talking about someone else and they were like you know that person they get very insecure when there's another brown mm -hmm. girl in the room mm -hmm, and i was mm -hmm. like that I have no desire to ever be the only black woman in a room. Right. right <laughs> I have right, right, zero right. desire. Right. Like I would never in a million years like uh, try to d dim someone else's shine. Yeah. That means that I don't yeah. believe in what I'm doing. Right. You know. Right. It, what's the point? Right. What's the I, point? Of I that? think that the quicker and faster that we are to help each other, you know, then the better for all of us, mm -hmm. even non-whites. I mean, even for non-blacks, you know, mm -hmm. I think that the more of us that are out there doing it right, you know, with with background and history and respect for the field, you know, and when I say that, not just for black food, but but for the culinary field in general, you know, I want to bring people up, put them right there on the front lines and go, you know what, his name might be big. But you got one, two, three, four, five, six people right here who is, are just as good, if not even better. Mm -hmm. You know, let's check out what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I want to do pop-ups to where my name might be on the marquee, but I'm showcasing the work of up-and-coming people. You know, like that's that's important. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more with Chef Chris Scott. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? 
Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. All right, so we are back with Chef Chris Scott. So talk to me about your, you know, your childhood. Like, do you have any dining memories that you remember? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I remember there was a place out in Paoli in Pennsylvania on the main line, and um, it was called the Seafood Shanty. And they would uh, put plaques on the chairs of, if anybody famous sat there. And I went there. My mother took me there for one of my birthdays, and Pete Rose, the baseball player, sat in the chair and I thought that that was like the ish. You know? <laughs> That's the coolest thing. <laughs> like, yo, I'm sitting where Pete Rose was sitting. But, um, but, but, you know, going to places like that, you know, to where I'm eating like raw clams at a young age and sushi going out, you know, traveling to Philly all the way out from Coatesville and everything and kind of got my palate all, all set. But things that I remember with my family, you know, when my grandparents were alive, they would entertain you know, and they'd be playing like Nat King Cole and have like a little barbecue out front and, you know, old folks playing cards and drinking until like 12 o'clock at night, you know, all loud, and, you know, <laughs> which is, which, which, which was always fun. But, um, you know, on New Year's Eve, I was always the first in the house. You know, the, the black tradition is that they always want a male to cross the threshold. So they would wake me up at like 1150 to go stand on that cold ass porch so that when when it became New Year's Day I'd walk back into the house you know first and um, a lot of food memories you know were always parties and celebrations you know Um, I grew up with my mother and my grandmother and my mom worked all the time my grandmother you know she did her thing so there was never really like a sit down time you know but for those moments that we all did get together with family, it was usually Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthdays, you know, things around that. So, do you take your kids to have like um, raw clams, or you know, how's how's their palate? I tell you this: my oldest girl, Elena, when she was young, she is probably the most adventuresome. Okay, you know, like yeah. she'll eat whatever, you know, and she'll want to get into the kitchen. She'll want to help out. She'll want to eat, you know, the whole nine. And one of my dishes that I used to make on New Year's Day, I would do like oxtail and black eyed peas and stuff. Now she's 21. She's living out in Portland and she makes that. Wow. Yeah. On New Year's or just all the time? I think on New Year's. Wow. Yeah, yeah, which is special, you know. And then there's Pearl and then Caleb, who I think just want to be served, you know. (laughs) Whatever you make and just bring it over here. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't want to do the right, work. Just right. bring me the food. And then Noah, who's four, she likes to help out. So we'll see how long that lasts. You know. <laughs> but but she likes to eat too. Do you remember um, like specific dishes you would have at certain like family get togethers growing there, up? There was one dish that I used to make all the time. And it was called ginger chicken. And okay. it was basically raw chicken pieces. That was like doused with uh, 
with lemon juice and ginger powder and onion. And then I would wrap it in foil and roast it. Wait, onion like slices or onion powder? Slices. Okay. And that was like my thing from maybe seven to about 18 years seven. old. Seven. Oh, yeah. I, I, man, I was getting loose in kitchens. Okay. Wow. <laughs> at a young age. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you were, did you learn this from somewhere or did you just freestyle it? I think I was just totally just kind of freestyling because I'm, I'm the type of cook, even still, where I'll take spices and just kind of smell them. Mm-hmm. And then a whole host of ideas will just come. You know, that's kind of how the process works. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm usually engaged by inspiration. You know, I could walk down the street on a fall day and the crackling of the leaves or the smelling of the fireplace or the pine leaves or whatever will inspire to, to, to do something. Mm-hmm. Same thing if like walking down on, on a beach or through the park mm-hmm. on during like a barbecue kind of thing where you're smelling, you know, the charcoal or, or things. So a lot of things come from from like memory of, of family, but also with what's right in front of my face, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, that's so great. I'm, I'm just picturing seven-year-old Chef Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get in trouble because my friends would come over and we'd be playing like games, you know, and video games and stuff. And, uh, and my mother would, would work and she would go grocery shopping the, the day before. So the very next day, I got my squad over. We're playing like football or whatever. And I'd be the guy to make milkshakes for everybody or the whole pack of hot dogs or burgers. Yeah. And she's like, I just bought all this food. Yeah, and now it's like, gone. yo, you know, I'm going to beat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the kitchen was a mess, too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. She was very upset. And she would get upset because I would create a lot of smoke in in the house and she would yell at me because she would be afraid that the smoke would go through the walls and get into her closets mm. and then her furs and all that would smell like smoke food <laughs> <laughs> so when you're not working do you have like a restaurant you like to go to there was really a good one that is no longer there um f- uh, it was uh franny's on, okay. on, on flatbush i've heard of it yeah they own, um, what else? Are they? they they have like three or four spots within feet of each other. There was Franny's, and then they have like a charcuterie spot. I forget the name of that one. Now I think they have like a little bar and grill kind of burger spot as well. But Franny's was there for almost like 20, 25 years. Wow. They named it after their daughter, who's a grown woman now. <laughs> but uh, But they would make the best pizza, everything made from scratch with the most interesting toppings. Um, they had a clam pizza there that was super, super good. And they had a relationship with a bunch of, of uh, local farms. So the produce that they would get would be off the hook. They had this one, they had a, a, a pork cheek terrine that was wow. on the menu. And, uh, and that was my favorite. I, uh, since you mentioned clam pizza, yeah. I have yet to find one that I actually like. See, if Franny's was still around, I would have told you to go there. <laughs> I have tried. I, you know, I feel I love seafood mm-hmm. and I love pizza, so right. I'm always like, I'm gonna try the clam pizza. Yeah, and I, I never like it. Yeah, see, I, man, that's 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 sad. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to uh, Pepe's, the famous oh you know, in Connecticut, Connecticut right. clam pizza. And, and you didn't it, like it? No, it was yeah. too dry. Mm. And the clams were like kind of overcooked. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I'm still searching for my okay. 
clam pizza. <laughs> That's what Charlie Trotter says. He says, always be on the quest for the perfect meal. Oh, see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where do you go now? Like, you know, since Franny's is closed. I'm telling you, I, these days I'm just so busy and working that, 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 that going out for me might be going across the street to the bodega for a chicken Caesar, mm. you know, or just like now, now, uh, Eugenie will cook for the kids and I'll eat that, you know, and, and she likes to make a lot of authentic Korean dishes, you know, which is always nice. Yeah. That's know? nice to come home to that. Right. 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 That's great. So, so that's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you point to like a restaurant experience that kind of shaped you or shaped your career? Yeah, there's a guy who's a dear friend and a mentor even to, to this day. His name is Al Paris out of Philadelphia. And um, he gave me like, I guess my first real chef job, you know, like I was always cooking, but it was like BS spots. And the place that he owned, it was a joint called S S Circa. And uh, that was right on Walnut Street. And um, he taught me a lot about the love of the game. Mm. Not necessarily about like recipes or ingredients. Uh, I learned a lot from the culture of the kitchen from his sous chef. But from Al, it was more, like I said, about the love of the game and just kind of paying attention to what you're doing, no matter how busy stuff gets. Like he, th there was one time like on a busy Friday or Saturday night. And I'm in the middle, so I'm, I'm in charge of veg and sauces. And to my left is saute, and he would bring over all the fish. And to my right would be the grill, and uh, he would bring over all the meat. So all the proteins would get passed to me. I would put it on the plate, hit it with sauce, veg, and then into the pass. And there was one day where it's just busy, and I'm just going through the motions. And, and Chef Al would take the dish, and he was a screamer. Mm. And he would take the dish and he would slam it onto the ground. So the china would break, the food is everywhere, and like right away, a, a guy would run over with a dustpan and brush and this and that and sweep it up. And he would bang his hand and say, give me, you know, a plate again. So I would do the same thing again. And he would take it again and slam it on the ground. Mm. At this time, the dude to my left and right are like, yo, whatever you're doing, get it together. Because I don't have enough protein where, you know, the chef is throwing my shit on the floor. Right. You know. So I'm looking at him like, I don't know what you want, chef. Like, what's what's wrong? And so he goes, give it to me again. So I go through the motions and I'm scared now, you know. So I put it up and he said, not once did you check it for seasoning. Not once did you check it to see if it's right. You're just, because it's busy, you're just kind of going through the motions and just giving me what I ask for, but you're not paying attention to your steps. Mm. No matter how busy you get, pay attention to your steps, you know? And I, those lessons from him stay with me, you know, not just from preparation to turnout to the way that I do my orders from the way that I teach my cooks, you know, I mean, it's anal as hell, you know, but those are the lessons that work and they've worked for me. I feel mm -hmm. like that's a um, lesson that you could take to any like area of your life, right, you know, right. like going through the motions. And yeah. I think about how often I do that, like even getting on the subway or, right. you know, trying to be a bit more present. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Right, right. Yeah, those, those are the lessons that, that Al would, would give me. And then he was also 
like I said, the one to teach me the love of the game. Like, why do we cook? You know, understand the power behind it. You know, understand that what we're doing is that we're bringing people together, you know, to commune around food. You know, so whatever is going on on the outside that day, be it politics or religion or, or whatever, at least we can come to the table and break bread and leave all that drama outside and we can kind of talk about what we need to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Wow, those are those are really powerful lessons that mm -hmm. you know have served you well. I, yeah. I bet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you like try to make sure that your cooks now have that and. Yeah, they they at least need to understand that. I mean, there were other people in the kitchen with Chef Al that Al would try to convey that to that just didn't grasp it or didn't want to. And the same thing in my kitchen, there will be people that hear it, and. You know, so I'm passing that torch on that Al gave to me. But there's also people that are like, you know, so what? Mm. You know, and unfortunately, they just don't get it. Um, but as long as they hear it and understand, as long as they're in my house, they kind of got to play by, by my rules. Mm. You know, so at least understand what you're doing. Care, you know. Yeah. So. How have you seen the New York? restaurant and food scene changed since you've been here i guess at philly too like how what have you noticed yeah when i left philly in 06 philly was still on that filet mignon with the portobello <laughs> cap on top with the asparagus crumbled blue, spears, asparagus spears <laughs> crab cake with the red pepper sauce and all that but philly has certainly changed for the better you know the food scene there is jumping off but I think that what I'm seeing a lot of now is that even places like 11 Madison Park kind of, I don't want to use the word downscaled, but sort of changed up their format a little bit because you, you see a lot of, like I was saying before, all these chefs that are now coming back home mm -hmm. and doing the food that is true to their heart, which doesn't really cost a lot of money. Plus that generation of that old head diner that would spend, you know, five, six, seven bills mm -hmm. going to a place like Per Se, they ain't around no more. You know, now you got people like you and me who at at most might spend a buck fifty, you know, might. You but know? just want a good meal. But just want a good meal. Yeah. And I think that you're seeing a lot of places like that pop up. You know, a lot of places that are focused on on on, on good comfort food or a style of food be it barbecue or pizza, you know, or chicken, you know, that are bringing that kind of style and flavor to it at a low cost, you know, but you see a lot of, 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 of great chefs that are at the helm, you know, so you know that the quality is good, you know, you got a guy like Richard Blaze out, you know, doing that place, the Crack Shack, you know, which is everything chicken and egg, you know, doing so well that he just opened up a spot in Vegas. Well, you know, so it, that's another thing. There's a lot of, um, you know, building, I guess, the empire per se. But like, you know, a lot of these restaurants, including EMP, I think, has something in Vegas now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this worked well here. So, you know, take it where you can like blow it up and do it on like this bigger scale. Right, 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 right. I think that maybe one day, just like in, uh, in that movie um, Total Recall. 
That's not where I was expecting (laughs) you to go. It'll be like a bunch of Taco Bells. It'll be like the year 3040, you know, and the only restaurant around is (laughs) is Taco Bell. Um, So, you know, I have some questions I ask every guest. Yes. Um, Can you talk about one of the worst dining experiences you've ever had in your life? And you don't have to name the restaurant? Oh, I'll name it. No problem. Okay. Well, great. Perfect. (laughs) So I I guess it was back in in 06 when me and my ex-wife, when we first moved here to to New York and we went to Mercer Kitchen. Okay. And they're about maybe Are they still open? I think so. It's down there by Dean and DeLuca. Okay. On Mercer Street. I think, and um, and uh, maybe eight, nine people in the whole room, you know. So we're standing there waiting to be sat, and not one person came through. Like, not one person came through. So we sat ourselves, and then we're sitting there for a good 15, 20 minutes. I'm looking, like, waving my hand, this and that. Finally, the dude comes over, and uh, he's like, so what can I get you, you know? Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I got like a tonic water. I think um, my ex-wife, she got like a, a glass of wine or whatever. And then still no server will come over to take the order. Nothing like that. And then when they did come through, they were like, oh, the kitchens is is closing. You know? Wow. And then I'm like, well, dude, we've been here for like 30, 40. Why didn't you say anything? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that was kind of rough. Back then, and a place like that, which is owned by Jean Georges. Wow. You know, that you would think that service would certainly be paramount mm-hmm. to anything else. You see me waiting to be sat, you come through. You know, even if, even, trust me, even if the kitchen is like 10 minutes away from, from closing, a place like Jean Georges wouldn't say that. Right. You know, but I would get it, you know, as, as someone that works in kitchens mm-hmm. you know like okay i see you guys are about to break down let me go to to the next spot but but none of that was shared wow yeah and i'm sure because it was jean George, it was not cheap yeah and then expensive. they had the nerve to even charge us for the for the drinks wow after they were like see ya <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you want food actually no right um, and here's your bill <laughs> right you can get out of and here get out now Um, So my last question for you, um, if you could have your last meal in a restaurant, where would it be? Mm -hmm. And who is invited? Uh, I guess for one night only, Franny's would have to come back, Mm -hmm. you know, and I would want all of my kids there, Elena, Pearl, Caleb, and Noah, and and Eugenie, you know, and and probably just, just us, you know, to where we would eat some clam pizza and I call you you know <laughs> or at least just save me a slice I'll, I'll I don't want to intrude on the last family meal yeah so I'll just you know just leave me a slice yeah, I'll yeah. Come and get just it. just like really go to town on 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 all the pasta and salads and pizza and everything there that always made Franny so good you know what are you having for dessert or are you not having dessert you know isn't that something I it just dawned on me that I never had dessert there Wow. You know what I'm saying? I'm up here talking, talking them up. I never even had sweets. Well, you can have food from like anywhere in the world brought right. to Franny's for your, for your last night. Well, I'm a big fan of ice cream. Okay. Any kind of ice cream and especially any kind of soft serve. So you can just plop a big old trough 
of soft serve in front of me with maybe five or six spoons and and there you go and what's your um beverage of choice i know you don't drink but what would you have with your with your meal tonic water or okay your big tonic tonic or tonic and lime okay or club soda anything sparkling Lacroix is always good plug plug <laughs> yes, Lacroix. If you're listening, if you would like to sponsor, pay me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, there should be at Birdman Juke Joint like a Lacroix station. I will I'm make space. Saying. I will make space. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, See? I will make the space. Ideas, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Um, you know, it's been such a joy to talk to you and and right. to follow you. Thank and, you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next week on The Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.